Welcome to the Spinning Wheels podcast, powered by Greenlight Sports and Entertainment, with your hosts, Guy Smith and Paul Woodford. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Spinning Wheels Motorsport podcast. And listening to this, wherever you download your podcast, you can also watch on YouTube all the shows so far. As Guy and I first discussed this show during lockdown one, it seems strangely fitting that we should be continuing the series as we go into the second national lockdown. Guy, you managed to squeeze in some races in a variety of historic racing cars at Goodwood Speed Week. How did that go? Yeah, it wasn't great, Paul, um, but it was still nice to get back you know, in a race car and be at a racetrack. Um, I think, you know, we, we all love, you know, being at the racetrack and, and that's what we all enjoy. So, um, you know, it, it's nice, it was nice to get back. Um, I think this, this hopefully is going to be a, a short lockdown and we can get back to racing again, um, you know, in preparation fully for next year's race, race calendar. And, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll get a full season in next year, whatever we you know, end up doing. So, yeah, yeah, hopefully. The, the crowds will be good anyway. Now, we should probably mention our guest from way back in episode four, Elvin Evans, with the cancellation of Ypres and the season now really in jeopardy, let's, let's face it, due to the, uh, the ongoing coronavirus uh, pandemic. We could actually see another British World Rally champion crowned without turning another wheel. Guy, that's only half the story, though, because throughout this series, we've heard about how hard work triumphs above bad luck and adversity. And, Elvin has had to dig deep to get to where he is now, so it w- won't be an easy, easy one championship, even if he is crowned before the next round, will it? Oh, I mean, he's had, he's had, you know, talk about ups and downs. I mean, I've kind of seen it firsthand from his time at M Sport, and you know, he's really had a ro- roller coaster uh, career so far. But um, you know, he, he kind of hit stride, didn't he, this year? With you know, once he got that Toyota, he really kind of uh, found his feet and found his confidence, and you know. If, if he does get crowned world champion this year, you know, some people will say, well, it's a shortened calendar and this and the other. But at the end of the day, he's leading the championship at this point. He's beating Seb Auger and, uh, you know, all the other guys, Nerville. So he's still, he's still leading the championship. And, you know, I think it's fully deserved. So there's, there's one round to go. Is that correct? Yeah, Monza, but it's unlikely. Well, it's looking less likely that he'll run. But of course, he, he's got a teammate in the same car who is the current world champion. So it's not like he's head and shoulders out in another car ahead of the pack, is it? So... Well, sometimes you know when you when you're in that position when you're leading the championship with everything to everything to sort of lose and nothing you know kind of it's one of those situations, isn't it? You know, with the pressure, you have a mechanical failure or anything else. It's it's a horrible situation to be in. But you know, fingers crossed that he does that, and I think he fully deserves to be um, a world champion. And and you know, it'd be brilliant for British motorsport. You know, obviously Lewis Hamilton's going to win the world championship in Formula One again, and, yeah. and if Lewis wins the, the rally world championship, two British world champions is is fantastic. So. Yeah. yeah, fingers crossed. And do go back and listen to episode four. We've got some uh, some big rally stars on the podcast so far. Now, as we record this on Bonfire Night, you will hopefully forgive us the distant sound of fireworks. With and my dog barking. You might hear my dog barking as well. He's going, <laughs> dog's going athletic. He's going crazy. So. We, can, we can deal with dogs and fireworks. And um, with, with some of the most iconic racing cars and liveries on his CV, Silkcut Jaguar, Benetton, Formula One, Jagermaster, Meister, Alpha, DTM, Harrods McLaren F1 and record-breaking supercar tests under his belt. Andy Wallace has had a pretty explosive career. You can forgive me that, that corny uh, link there as well. And he joins us to talk about it now. Welcome to Spinning Wheels, Andy. Where on earth do we start? Well, that's a good question. And that's why you're so good at what you do, because you'll find a place, right? <laughs> well, you've just come back from a trip um, testing a rather fast car. So I suppose we could start there and then rewind right back. So tell us where you've been recently. Well, I mean, for, for the last 10 years now, it is. I've, I've been uh, doing quite a lot of work with Bugatti and driving some of their 
hypercars. And I was really lucky, obviously. I had a very long career um, in single-seaters and then um, the longest part, of course, in, single, in uh, sports car racing, endurance racing. And Guy and I drove together. We've, you know, we've been around each other. And we, we have all been driving some amazing cars that are really fast, or so I thought. And then I'll tell you something. Um, I remember a time when racing cars were really powerful and really fast and road cars were the opposite. Um, but you know what? It's changed around. Racing cars have got so fast over a lap that, of course, the organisers of the events have tried to slow the cars down. Yeah. Over a lap, they're still very fast, but the power output's been cut down. Everything's cut down. So you've now got hypercars, which go so much faster than any race car that you could ever imagine driving. And that's what really sort of, that shocked me when I first joined Bugatti. It's been impressive trying to see or trying to understand what, what you can actually buy these days if you've got rather deep pockets, of course. This is the, the sheer on that Andy's talking about. And uh, if you've seen the, the lap, who was just talking to Guy and I, it's, it looks super composed, but um, we're led to believe there was a lot more going on inside that car. What speed was it? 300 and, and what? <laughs> 304.7724. Yeah. Not that I remember exactly what it was, but <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> but, you know, as, as Guy will, will tell you, I mean, we, as a, as a racing driver, you're quite often doing 200 miles an hour, maybe up to 220 miles an hour. And this is normal. And yep. you get used to that speed quite quickly. And in fact, um, you, you actually feel quite comfortable doing 200 miles an hour. Isn't that right, Guy? I mean, it's kind of normal. It's kind of, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you're at Le Mans, you're at <laughs> You know, it's, it's kind of normal. So, so your brain is very, very comfortable at that speed. But then, when somebody says, uh, oh, do you fancy driving at 300 miles an hour? You think, that's, that's not that much faster, is it, really? Or, or even 250, that's not that much faster, is it? But something happens with speed, although it should be a linear measurement, it really isn't inside your brain. So what I was, I was always trying to explain was, okay, so let's say I always pick 150 miles an hour, because if you're on the German autobahn, obviously, not on the M40, but if you're doing 150 miles an hour in anything, that's actually pretty quick, isn't it? But then if you do 150 to 180, that is a massive jump, and it's only 20% faster. So why is that? Why does your brain perceive it as so much faster? Perhaps it's just the familiarity of the speed or not. But what I can tell you is, to cut a long answer a bit shorter, over 300 miles an hour is absolutely barking mad and it was something i will never ever forget um it was a, a really a, a whole week of build-up to this which is all the engineers gathering data uh, validating all the aero numbers um michelin doing a lot of work to make sure that the tires were okay for that speed and even before that week started the weekend before being given a shear on which is limited to 261 miles an hour given a shear on to play with for the weekend at the test track with the limiter removed first time you go over 260 miles an hour it just absolutely blows you away and then i was thinking then blimey so we're talking about over 300 that can't be it can't be true then you start with the program and you start analyzing all the data and making sure that you've got the right amount of lift down force front rear balance and then finally you do it and after all that build up still the last run is the fastest run yeah. And still, it's a shot from the run before, even though it's only maybe five or six miles an hour quicker. It's crazy. 
Do you think there's more in it, Andy? Or do you get or you sort of terminal velocity at that point? Are you kind of stalling out, do you think, or well the the, the problem is in the end it's all you're going so fast across the ground, you're doing um, a kilometre every seven seconds at that speed and a mile in eleven and change. You run out of space. Well you certainly do if you're doing it on a track. So this track is 8.8 .8 kilometers long between the banking turns at each end. It's 5.5 miles. Which track is it? And uh, it's Erelacine, the, the Volkswagen Proving Ground. Okay. It's actually the, because I had the, the world speed record with the McLaren F1. That, uh, that was Jonathan, were you Jonathan Palmer back in the day developing that with him? Well, yeah, Jonathan did a lot of the chassis stuff. And I, I was, I raced for McLaren, in, as you say, in the Harrods McLaren for a couple of years. And I ended up getting the job of doing some customer handovers for McLaren. And then in the end, they said, oh, do you want to go and do this top speed run we're going to do? So, of course, I did. Um, that was 214. That was 1998. And I thought that was fast. But the step from 240 to 304 is massive. So, yeah, it's the same track. And that long straight, which in the McLaren seemed quite long enough to get the job done, in the Chiron, even though you're coming off the banking at something like um, 150 miles an hour, you're covering the ground so quickly that in the end, of course, you, you, you see the other end coming. The speed is still climbing, but there has to become a point where you lift off and you've got to get the speed down for the banking turn at the end. So was it VMAX? No, it's still climbing, but it's very, very slow, but it's still accelerating. If you made it another couple of miles longer, I'm not sure how fast it would go. <laughs> but you're covering so much ground. It's incredible. It's like something like 140 meters per second. You wouldn't make the corner. You're really, yeah, I've got to 305. Oh shit, I've got a corner. It's like, it's <clears> well, yeah. Well, that's that's the that's the thing, mate. Because um, you know, as we, as we all know, on the racetrack, you, when you're trying to get a fast time, you, you're measuring your braking points, and you're trying to break a couple of meters later. Yeah. Well, because each time you do a run and you validate the numbers and then you, you go again and you go again you're arriving at the other end faster so you don't have any reference point as to where the braking area is there's a gantry as you get close to the end yeah. but you're suddenly you're aware that this run is pretty quick you've got more speed than you had at any other time and you're trying to judge okay where's the corner where's the gantry God, everything's coming really quick you need to pick a spot and interestingly though the at the end the german engineers were checking everything yeah yeah that's the speed it was four it's over 490 kilometers an hour and then very dryly they said to me yes but we noticed uh you lifted about 130 meters too early at the end you know to what was possible so i was like well i'm sorry you know i was arriving you even measure 130 meters at that speed well exactly and they said well how, how long you know how early did i lift then in time oh yeah about 0.72 seconds or something so well i'm really sorry i put my hand up i i messed it up but you see what i mean but you don't if you had several runs at that yeah you could probably get it absolutely on the on the nail probably the easiest way is just to make the road longer but yeah. that's not really possible but, it, but it, I mean, this is the thing you're covering the ground so fast and there's so much input coming in to you yeah. and i don't know it's it, you have to try to slow some of those inputs down and just try to concentrate on the important things and as we do at Le Mans, you know, in, in the dark or when it's raining at night in Le Mans and it's a little bit foggy, you can't really see where you're going, but you've got these landmarks in your mind. So you kind of have a, uh, another sense of where you are, um, yeah. roughly. And that's what you're trying to do when you, you're going that fast, because everything's going fast so quickly. You need to pick things that you can actually pinpoint where you are. 
It's a strange, it looked, strange thing. It looked so calm though. I mean, we talked we talked about it before, but I mean, I thought I just wa- I just watched it before we spoke, and I was like, wow, it looks it looks so you know so relaxed and so calm. And I was watching the speed going up. I thought, yeah, he's, you know, it looks easy. It looks like it's you know, but you you, you said it's definitely not easy. Definitely well, not. the strange thing is that this track is actually played a little bit by crosswinds. So right. there's, um, there's wind socks all the way down and there's also there's trees either side and then sometimes there's a gap in the trees and there's some crosswinds. So a lot of the runs were spoiled by that and you're, you're going along and you, you see the wind socks are down and then in the distance you see one that's pointing left. And you know what's going to happen when you get there. And as you arrive, you're kind of trying to lean against what you think is coming as the wind, but still it blows you into another lane. It's really, really yeah. difficult. So terrifying. Well it, well, it is because there's nothing you can do. This is the thing. You, you, every tiny, like half a millimetre of movement on the steering wheel, and you've, you've swapped planes. It's, it's ridiculous how, you know, yeah. how, how careful you have to be and how slow with your inputs. But no. sorry, I think. Also, yeah, let's say so, so, you know, so you do runs and runs and runs, and then all of a sudden the wind will drop, and you get the feeling, right, we should go now because this will be less um, horrible <laughs> from the driving seat, if you like. But if you look at the, probably, I don't know which video you've seen, because there's several of them out there. And one of them, uh, I'm not sure you can get it on its own, but it, it it's might quite possibly be the bottom video and there's three videos together. It's actually the raw footage of the run. And if you see the GPS speed readout in the middle of the screen, that big square box, mm-hmm. if you look to the right and the left of that screen, you'll see the white lines of the center lane that I'm driving, driving down. So if you look on the, the right of the screen, you'll see the white lines are right close to the box in the window, and then they go across to the right a bit more, then they come back. If you look at the ones on the left, they go over there, and then all of a sudden they disappear behind the box through the window, and then they come back again. So you're just watching the video, everything looks fine, but if you can see the lines moving that much, yeah. you know how much it's moving. Yeah. You just, just for some reason the video doesn't show it. I guess it's the, 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 way, yeah, the way it's the lens or whatever. But yes, it was moving quite a lot. And I, I had several runs before the quick run where I got to around about 280 miles an hour. And then I just had this feeling I had no control over the car anymore. And it was swapping lanes. And I'd just lift off around, say, 280, 285 and come back. And a couple of times the engineers said, well, what, what do you want us to do? You know, what, what do you need? Because I, I guess in the end, they don't know whether you lift off because you're just losing your bottle or, or, or what you know they don't really know so at one point when they asked me the question i said listen all i would like if i could just wish for one thing i don't mind if it's weaving in the lane but could it just stay in one lane then i'll cope with it i'll be okay it's when it's like swapping all over the place that it's a problem the wind died down they they just did a little bit of work on the software on the steering again really clever guys really fantastic working with these top engineers in their field and then all of a sudden when that windsock dropped to almost completely vertical and it went i, I suddenly had this feeling there there is um i should mention there's a, a join in the tarmac which so the bit where you're accelerating up to speed is new tarmac yeah. and then you cross over this join and you're on the old stuff and this track is used pretty much 24 7 so it's quite rutted yeah. and, and quite well worn I actually go over that that join, which nobody even notices in a normal car at a normal speed. But in the Shearer, I was convinced it was leaving the ground. So I kept calling it the jump. 
And I said, yeah, and when I went over the jump, I was doing 430 or whatever kilometers an hour. And they said, why do you call it a jump? I said, well, because it, it is a jump. They were looking through the data and came back to me the next day and I said, you know what? Yeah, that is a jump. You're leaving the ground. <laughs> so on this particular run, when there was no um, headwind or crosswind, suddenly I went over this jump and I'm doing like, I don't know, 270 something miles an hour. Boom, and it landed again. It's just a very split second. And as it landed, it felt really stable more stable than the other runs. So then you know, okay, this is quite good. I'm gonna be less affected by this. You obviously keep your foot in it. Yeah. Some seconds go by, the speed's climbing, 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 climbing. You then get to a point where it doesn't feel really, really nice, but you know, I've done by this time, I don't know, 20 runs, 30 runs, even more runs maybe. You know that if you don't like it and you lift off, because you don't like it, they're gonna make you do it again. So if you feel like it's only three quarters as scary as it was before, you just keep your foot in it. Pin. Yeah, you keep it pinned. And I did. I just kept it pinned and it was moving around, moving around. Then it didn't move around so much. And then, then you see the speed climbing, climbing, climbing. You think, right, that's it. I'm in now. And you just keep this thing pinned. Amazing. It's going faster and faster and faster. And then, boom, it went. When I saw, I actually passed a radar. There's a radar speed trap on the track, which... Obviously, it had only been configured up to, or calibrated up to, I don't know, 450 kilometers. I passed it and it said something like 513 or 516 kilometers an hour, which is like, I don't know, 315 miles an hour or more. I passed that and then I looked at my reading again and my reading was like way lower than that. So I just you know, ignored it and kept going, but the numbers kept climbing, climbing, climbing. And I knew in my head that 483 was 300 miles an hour and once it cleared that and it was still accelerating yeah. I knew it was a good run that's incredible insight and then after you production finish, cars, they look so you just think when, when you hear these headlines that somebody jumps in a production car and it's designed to do that speed and they just put their foot down and do it I, I actually never realized there was so much to it well I tell you the, this is the other thing too with, with um, Guy and me we're all you know you're driving race cars and race cars have a lot of downforce this is what they're designed for. And even if you go to a track like the Mar, where you're relatively low downforce because of the high speed, you still have a good bit of downforce front and rear. So the stresses on the tires at that speed, the tearing force that the tires have to withstand. Uh, I was in some, um, some press conferences with, with uh, Michelin after this and listening to those, those engineers explaining it. So there's a tearing force of seven tons at 300 miles an hour on the tires. So it, just to get that into perspective, a Chiron weighs almost two tons. So you're talking about, you can pick up with one tire, three and a half Chirons, and that's the load that the tire's going through. So it's a horrendous amount of force. So of course, before you even attempt something like this, they go to their tire testing rig. And, and also, by the way, the wheels need to be tested at the high speed too. So they went to the rig, and in fact, the only rig in the world that can test the tires up to that speed is the rig that they use to test the space shuttle tires so they're there and what you have is this big drum and you can put the tire up against the drum you can take it up to high speed and then you can, you can add the load of the car you can put some toe some camber your uh, pressure up and down and you can see how fast you can take the tire up to so of course they did all this all this work but when they came back to bugatti they said listen you can easily exceed the speed that you think you can go but one stipulation is we don't want any downforce 
So now what you're trying to do is, it would be easy if you put a few hundred kilos of downforce both ends, thing would be stable. So they're asking, can, can we try to achieve zero front and zero rear downforce on the car? So as we all know, as the speed increases, the, the aero balance migrates. So generally, the faster you go, it migrates towards the rear. So if you start off with, let's say you start off with 50 kilos of downforce on the front at um, 200 miles an hour, by the, get, by the time you get to 250, you've probably got nothing on the front. And by the time you get to 300, you've got lift. And correspondingly, you're getting more on the back. So that's why you do a lot of calibration runs to see where you are. And each, each uh, on the calibration runs, you go a constant speed for 10 seconds and you measure the aero load front and rear, <clears throat> excuse me. And then you take that up another 10, 20 miles an hour, you do another 10 second run and you keep doing this. And this is going over days. This was a thousand kilometers of running, mostly above 250 miles an hour, taking all these data points to make sure, because it's so easy for, if you're, if you're going along, the front's lower than the back, and as you get quicker, you've probably got almost no rake, same front and rear. But if you suddenly gained 10 millimeters of front um, ride height, it's a chain reaction. Yeah, Car's it's gone. An it flies. I mean, at Mossport, I did that with the, the, the Dyson well, Lola. I'm going to ask you about that. We'll, we'll come to that one. because We'll come to that later. Yeah. Yes. So it's easy for that to happen. So you've got to be sure of all your numbers and you've got to be sure that everything you found in the wind tunnel, all the computer generated stuff is true. And that as the speed increases, you're not gaining too much lift on the front. Again, if you had downforce on the car, you could just nail it down, job done. But this extra load from the downforce, yeah. you then put the load up on the tire. So this is what we were asked to do. So the very last data point you can do for 10 seconds is at 450 k's, which I think is 280 miles. Yeah. So when you come back after doing one or two or more data runs at 450, 280 miles, you check all the data, you can make a calculation. Okay, so at 300 miles an hour, this is how much lift you'll have at the front and hopefully it's a good bit less than the static weight of the car. This is how much downforce you'll have in the back. And then you make a calculation and say, okay, you can go, you can do the run. So uh, that's why <laughs> the car can be a little bit unstable because you've almost got no downforce and perhaps a bit of lift at the front yeah. and you've got a crosswind and you've got a road that's quite bumpy. Yeah. So now the other thing is, which you, you maybe you've already thought of this, but I, I stupidly thought nothing of this. I'm thinking, well, that's great. Well, if the car's got no downforce, it's going through the air and it's really happy going through the air. There's no downforce. There's no lift. It's just going through the air. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Actually, what's happening at 300 miles an hour, if you achieve zero, zero front rear, you've got under the car two tons of downforce and on the of the car two tons of lift so you're now trying to rip the car apart with a four ton tearing force just to have zero downforce so you see you don't build a car in your garage and go out and go fast you trust science engineering best engineers money can buy yeah and that's how you do this project yeah if you want to Keep the well, car right. on the ground. So every, every force just moves along in the car, doesn't it? It moves somewhere else. You, you, you take it from somewhere else and somewhere else takes the strain. Yes. And it, it's one of those. But, I mean, yeah, you don't really think, like Paul said, you don't really think, you know, you hear about all these different records and what have you, and you just assume that they go out there and find a straight bit of road and nail it. But there's, there's obviously a lot of work, especially when you get into that kind of speed. Um, I mean, it's super impressive. That's really opened my eyes, yeah. actually. 
Yeah, well, I, I think another thing to add to that, sorry, is also that we're, we're talking about the uh, Volkswagen Group and we're talking about Bugatti. Um, yeah. They don't do things recklessly. They, they do everything from an engineering-led point of view. So yeah. going to do it on a, a piece of straight road somewhere isn't acceptable because yeah. it's very, very hard to be absolutely sure there is no wild animal running across the road or there is something on the road that you can touch at high speed and, you know, you run over a pebble at that speed, you're going to cause the tyre a massive problem. Yeah. So they had these enormous great mats that um, airports use to clean runways and they, this, a lap of this track is 20 kilometres. They did a, it's a five hour job to take these mats around and clean the entire circuit and then it's all closed down and only you can use it wow so this way you're trying to eliminate all the different risk areas yeah. of course you can't eliminate everything but you give yourself the best chance you can and so that's why we had to do it on this track yeah um it's not long enough now i mean it used to be when cars used to do 250 yeah. <laughs> when you're starting to talk about over 300 it needs to be longer but it's not yeah that, that's just what an adventure to have been a part of and what a great place to start as well but i think right now we need to go right back down we need to lower the speed right back down to to where you started because it was single seaters to begin with wasn't it you did a this this what in those days when i was a kid growing up watching motor racing that was what you did if you wanted to be a racing driver you went single seaters and through the ranks that's what you did wasn't it yes it is yeah and uh, and just to join that last conversation back to where you're going with it um in actual fact since i was i can remember six or seven years old uh, my dad first took me to a racetrack. I just, I just loved cars. I, I just, I wanted to race them. I wanted to drive them. And I've been crazy about cars. And up to today, I'm still crazy about cars. So going down this run and saying how terrifying it is to do it, you're still sat in the daddy of all cars doing the fastest speed. And so however I got there, um, despite everything else that's going on, I'm really, really lucky and it's something i'll never forget so yes back to the beginning the thrill of driving it's still the you know thrill of driving you know that that speed and exhilaration you know you still you still you're still doing it now which is amazing i mean i mean you know as a career it's 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 just fantastic but i mean it must be a long cry you know far cry from when you were cycling to silverstone having your what was it cheese and pickle sandwich your pickle sandwiches whatever you're having you remembered it was cheese pickle. It was cheese and pickle because that was <laughs> that was in fashion once. I mean, I don't suppose people eat cheese and pickle sandwiches anymore. But yes, I, I was thirty miles from Silverstone, lived near Oxford. Um, my dad was working all hours, so he couldn't take me to to the racetrack. So um, yeah, I had one of those sprung loaded racks on the back, cheese and pickle sandwiches. Bob, off you go to Silverstone. It was three hours each way to do this thirty miles on this bike with trucks passing and everything. And yeah, you had a whole day. It was most once you found the, the hole under the fence because I didn't have money to buy a ticket. You could sit there and watch racing all day long, and that's kind of what I was dreaming about. So yeah, it's an interesting. It is a far cry. You're right, but every step of the way um, with motor racing, I've I've noticed is you're only ever going to succeed. Well, first of all, if you're incredibly lucky, you have to put yeah. hand up for that. But you're yeah. only going to succeed if it if you really really want to do it above. Yeah all else yeah and so with that uh, even though this there wasn't any money sloshing around um and i think if you tried to do what both of us 
did in our racing cruise in the minute, you couldn't recreate it now because the starting cost of racing is much too high. Yeah. But back then, if you had a couple of mates and a box of tools, um, you could you could sleep in a tent and, and you know you could get the job done for very little money. And that's yeah. in fact what I did do. Yeah, you could go into racing from the Ford and it could be you know dad and lad or or like you say with mates or whatever else. Whereas now, if you rock up, you know it's got you got you got to have. You know, 250 grand, it's with a big team, it's all the PR and all the rest of it. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work the same these days, which is, which is a shame, really, because it shouldn't be like that, should it? How ironic is it that in those days, I mean, when you won the Formula 3 championship, that to, to win Formula 3 in those days was such a big thing. Now, it's not, but it costs a lot more. And as you say, the access to it is, is a lot higher. Isn't that, hasn't that gone the complete wrong way? Yeah, it, it has. It, yeah, it really has. I mean, it, it's. I mean, you should. Nothing stands still, does it? And I think if you if you uh, you know go and have a beer with some some friends and you start talking about this, you can commit to yourself. Oh, it was much better in the old days, and it's just perhaps because we're getting old. Mm -hmm. um, nothing stays still. Um, everything always progresses. But what what was possible then was with almost no money. Uh, and not the best equipment, you could actually do a half decent job in the car and somebody would notice you enough to, to help you out with a, a couple of hundred quid here and a couple of hundred quid there. Now, without the best equipment, nobody's going to notice you even turned yeah. up. Yeah. And I think this is the yeah. problem. And yes, it is a shame. But I think Formula 3 back, I mean, Formula 3 back then, um, you know, was, because they didn't have all the different formulas, you had sort of Formula 4, F2000, Formula 3, 3000 Formula One, it was quite straightforward. Um, but Formula Three, out of all of the categories, was that was the real one where you know Formula Ford was always really good, they had the festival and everything else. But when people got to Formula Three, that was the time when the Formula One teams were really looking at, at, at Formula Three drivers. That was the point where the maturing, you know, this is where the talent really, really shone. And um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I remember your car, I remember the warm style livery, you know, it was a pretty iconic livery, I remember your helmet design. Um, which I was going to ask you about about your helmet design, but I'll ask you later on. But um, you know, you, you know, you had a, a fantastic season, and you also won uh, the Macau race as well. Um, I mean, you know, but but then sort of then to you know to go to sort of move on from there to Formula One, was there any opportunities or or, or not without taking money? I guess it was just about. Um, yeah, and interestingly, you mentioned all the categories, but the interesting thing was where Formula Two is. Yeah. Um, was always a bit cloudy around that time. So there was Formula Two, there was Formula Three Thousand came after Formula Two, but it wasn't it wasn't the definitive step to Formula One. F three, in fact, was the step to Formula One. I mean, yeah. if you look at uh, all the champions, F three champions before me, I think I started a trend and made it the first one who didn't make it to Formula One. <laughs> Interestingly enough, um, but yeah, everybody did, and so when, particularly Winnie Macau as well, that made a big difference too, because it's such a um, iconic race, and you had guest drivers coming down from sports car racing from Formula One to do that race, so it's a big deal. Although, of course, if you were a current Formula Three driver, you had a bit of a leg up because you you knew the cars. Yeah, um, I did go and knock on all the F1 doors at the end of '86, having that great season, and I was offered two drives, one with Tyrrell and one with Arrows but they needed 600,000 US dollars. Yeah. And if they said 6,000 US dollars, it wouldn't have been possible. Yeah. yeah. So it was an absolute non-starter. But what saved me, because to be honest, you can't, I did Formula 3 in 85, and up until the last race, I was still one point between myself and Maurizio Guzman. 
and Silverstone was the last race and we lined up for the start and um, he was on pole and I was second and I had my car pointed slightly towards him. The uh, flag went down, I shot off the line and got a better start than him and I missed the shift to second gear and I had to fall in behind him and then he won the race and I came second. So um, that race, you know, I was second that year. So you yeah. can just about get away with doing Formula 3 again, forget yeah. the money problem side of it. Yeah. But you can't win the championship and do it again. There's nothing to gain. No. Yeah. So you go to F1, uh, that bit in the middle of Formula 3000, yes, I did end up doing some races in Formula yeah. 3000, but it's it's incredibly expensive and it's, it's yeah. really difficult to do. Yeah. So at that point, it could just have been that the career finished completely. But during that Macau race, this is in the end what, this is where the massive luck comes in. This is a good story because I've, I've read about this one. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's interesting. And you can you can find this bit that I'm going to talk about on YouTube, but it's such a difficult thing to find because it's stuck with another load of videos. It's like, I don't know, 60 or 80 videos. And a very accomplished uh, sports car driver, but he'd also done Formula One a few times. And he's he, a great guy, never had the money to get where he was going. But so during the first heat of the Macau event, he was leading and the way the track was set out the first corner used to be the Lisboa corner and so you've got a very very wide straight all the way down and then it narrows up as it goes around the Lisboa corner and from then to the finish line it's very very difficult to pass so if you're going to pass somebody it's got to be that corner so on the very last lap of the first heat he's in the lead he's he's a he's a great guy with amazing car control but he was looking in the mirror. I was all over him like a rash, to be honest, trying to pass him. And I just couldn't find a way past. But I just thought I'll break as late as I can and I'll try and pass him there. So looking in the mirror, I can see him everywhere. And he broke so late and he managed to get his left rear wheel on the white line on the left as he was coming in. And he kind of lost control of the car. And it was then heading for the apex, which is a barrier on that corner. And there was nothing he could do. He was going to go head first into the barrier. So I'm directly behind him and I saw my chance. So I dived down the inside of him and I pushed him straight. We bumped front and rear wheels, pushed him straight, took the lead. And now he's directly behind me, but we're both, we're both still going. So he chased me around the rest of the lap and I won the heat. Um, I did rather better than him in the second uh, race. And I think overall he was probably third. I think uh, Manuel Puro was second and I won overall. So on the podium, he was like, oh, that was amazing. Thanks for... I was going in the barrier so we kind of got friendly and it just so happened that Jaguar were looking for one more driver for their Le Mans program so I mean somehow he obviously put my name in the hat and I was invited to go to Paul Ricard for a, a test and I went down there and, and out of luck and whatever else I managed to get the job so it's just so weird isn't it so everything was going to stop and then suddenly because of this one race I got the chance to Racing sports car racing. In I've got a car to race in sports car racing as well. The the car when you think back at some of the Group C cars and the cars we've all thought of. I've got a, a silk cut Jaguar artwork above my bed in, in our bedroom. Yeah, a bit like that one behind me. You mean? Mine's <laughs> just like the corner of the car. It's not quite as iconic <laughs> as your picture. It's all my wife would let me have. So that obviously you first oh, yeah. Le Mans, Andy, first ever Le Mans, and you you go and win it. But Jaguar, um, what a car in Group C racing to be to be getting into for the first time. Yeah, no, absolutely amazing. And, and uh, even if you go back to that 
poor Ricard test, you know, I'd never driven anything that went over 200 miles an hour before. And suddenly, and I'd never actually driven a closed... What, just 200? Bike. Just a measly 200? Yeah, so I think it was 205 or something on the back straight <laughs> for Ricard, but it's easily faster than I'd ever been before. And also, you know, just being in a very, very claustrophobic, closed car, um, it's a different thing. It's hot. It, uh, the car's heavier than you're used to. So, but uh, Jan was uh, on hand there and he kind of steered me through. Listen, you're going to find this and this and this and don't worry if it's weaving about, just let it do it. You know, it's a little bit like towing a caravan in a crosswind. Just, just let it do it. You'll be fine. And he, and he really helped me through the test. And at the end of the first part of the test, I was just being sort of evaluated for lap time and the lap times were good. And then later on, once I think they decided I could do the job, they said, okay, well, we want to see whether you can, you can do this lap after lap, because that's obviously what you're going to need to do in Le Mans. So they stuffed me in the car and fueled the car up to the top and said, right, we'll see you in an hour. And of course, I, I thought, right, well, I just, I, I was doing my energy management and my <laughs> brain power management to, to finish the end of that hour with every lap as fast as I could. And I got to the end of that hour thinking I've done quite well, actually, the lap times were pretty consistent. I opened the door when I came in the pits and they're like, what are you doing? I said, well, that's it. No, 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 no. So the fuel nozzle went back on and they made me do another hour, by which time I was totally used up before I even left the pit lane. But it must have gone okay because uh, I was invited to the office uh, on Monday morning and said, right. And then we sat down and said, right, okay, we, we want you in our team. Where was the office? Um, in Kidlington, in right. Oxford. That would have been Tom Walkinshaw's. Tom Walkinshaw yeah. Racing, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. it. And then basically they were saying, right, okay, you've got no experience in sports car racing. We want you for Le Mans, but of course you can't just race in Le Mans. So yeah. um, we're going to send you to, I think Jerez was the first race in, in Spain. Then um, there was a race in Atlanta. Uh, was a, and there was lots and lots of testing. Um, and then, so Le Mans was obviously, it was the first time I'd been to Le Mans. There was no test day that year. Wow. But I had had some experience in, in the sports car before. <laughs> Event. The team must have been like bit, bit like a Formula One team, I'm assuming, because I know that like top sports car teams generally operate, don't they? They're you know, very similar level to a Formula One team. So it must have been a big, you know, big. I know when I, when I joined Bentley, you know, from from uh, from doing single seaters and stuff, you arrive there and it's you know it's quite a big organisation. Obviously, lots of other drivers. So there's lots of things to figure out and fit in and understand how you kind of, you know, your place in the team and stuff. Um, but. Um, yeah. But to go, you know, to, go to, to go to Le Mans, I mean, how was your first sort of taste of Le Mans then, driving? driving that well, you're, you're absolutely right too. And, and um, these races before I got there, you could already see how important sports car racing was, how professional it was and how good all the top teams were. So that was the shock to begin with. And then you get to Le Mans thinking you know sports car racing and then you realise that this is a whole new game. Yeah. Um, the level of professionalism was like nothing I'd ever seen before. Then because there was no test day, you're out onto the track and of course there was no chicanes at uh, 88 and 89 the, the chicanes hadn't been installed so you set off down the straight there's no speedo in the car in, in those days you just had a, a a taco and i was studying the gear chart before and i spotted roughly where 200 miles an hour was and i'm going down the straight my first couple of times down the straight and i got to 200 and everything was whizzing past so quickly and i thought oh shit this is really not cool so you sit there and of course you're, you're a professional driver and if um, that's the easiest part of the car to change, they always used to say, the driver's like on a bayonet fitting. If it's not working, you just throw out and put another one in. So you've got to perform. So anyway, but 
your brain's telling you, yeah, just take it easy the first couple of laps. So I, I sat around 200 miles an hour and about halfway down the straight, a Jaguar and a Mercedes passed me like I was tied to a post. And I thought, oh shit, that's gonna be fast the next lap. So in course, you're young, you're in your twenties, so you've got a very small imagination. So the next time down the straight, you just pin it, you just sit there. And sure enough, you know, we were approaching, it was interesting, we, we were, yeah, close to 250, I guess, but still in the 240s as a VMAX. As a wow. But people were having a lot of tires exploding, even in those days, and, and it was a lot to ask of a radial tire. So although we were using radials the whole year, uh, Dunlop was our tire supplier, they would only allow us to run on cross-ply tires. For safety. 24 hours for safety, yeah. So a cross-ply tire actually grows in diameter quite a lot at speed. So we were geared for 231, but with the growth, it was uh, it was the upper side of 240s. Yeah, so, so that's quite interesting. And the other problem, of course, with a with a radio, if you if you have a puncture, generally the sidewall of the tire is what actually lets go. And all right, it's probably a big stretch to say at 250 miles an hour you could control the car, but at least the main carcass of the tire tries to stay on. But with a cross-ply tire, if it fails, you basically have a, it, it, has, it starts to have a, a small problem and then it unravels. So once the tire's gone round once or twice, it's got a tail. It and then the course, yeah, it takes, and the rear wing was just above the, the um, venturi of the ground effect at the back. So after it's been round a couple of times, it rips, it rips the, the wing off and then you're upside down. And that's in fact what happened to Wynn Percy in 87. He had a tire failure and then the car was upside down at 230 miles an hour. Did you ever have any big chunks or big moments at Le Mans in all the years? Because obviously you've been there you know, a fair few times. Did you have any kind of scary moments? Yeah, I did uh, 21 starts and um, I had a small one when I was with Toyota. Yeah. Uh, which was uh, could continue, but I had a fairly large one in 2007 in the RML. Um, Entrance of the Porsche, Porsche uh, curves. Yes, yeah. Do you remember that one? Yeah, and it's really I strange. Just, um, yeah, yeah. I, can't, I can't remember what happened. Would you hit the bump? Was it the bump or what was it that? Yeah, it was a really, really strange thing. So, so we we won the LMP2 in 2006, and it was the car was really flying in 2007 as well, and it was a situation where. Uh, the safety car came out, it was damp, um, and then I can't remember exactly how, how it happened. I think I may have made a pit stop or whatever, and I was on a set of hot tyres out of the warmers, but behind the safety car. And of course the temperatures drops, and the pressure drops, and the, you lose ride height. And yeah. so when the safety car pulled off, it may have been I was behind the one that pulls off at Morsain Corner, so I got going and I went through Indianapolis and through Arnage and I kind of felt like I had enough temperature. And you, you, you tend to get some, you get the lateral grip earlier than you get the longitudinal grip, I've noticed yeah. with yeah. these tires. So I kind, it gave me the feeling that it was okay, but the pressures must have still been quite low. And when I arrived at the Porsche Curves, you arrive down there in sixth gear, you pluck fifth, turn and go full throttle. It's almost, the only reason you just tap the brake is just to pull the gear. Yeah. So I sent it in wide open, went over the bump, and it just hit the bottom uh, right under the rear axle and just boffed and just pulled it back off the ground. So you're off the ground in a split second, you put the opposite lock on because you feel the back's gone. That's yeah. because you're not on the ground. And as soon as you land, it bites and sends you in the wall. Oh. 
and that's what happened. And the weird thing is, uh, it, the barrier's a bit further away now than it used to be. Yeah. As soon as I realised what had happened, I, I looked at the barrier and it was coming towards me from the side. And I looked at it and I'm like, well, oh, this is the one. And I honestly thought I wasn't going to get away with this one. Really? And no. I kind of crouched as much as I could and then it hit so hard. It's like unbelievable. And yeah, you have no idea what you're doing. I mean, I think I must have knocked myself out for some seconds or whatever. But I remember I sort of woke up in the car and then I thought, I thought, right, well, I, I probably should get out of the car. So I took the steering wheel off and then, then I thought, well, I, how can I get out of the car with the steering wheel on? So I put the steering wheel back on and then I couldn't get out of the car because the steering wheel was on. So then I take the steering wheel off and I did this like three or four times. And so I was so confused. And then they're talking to me on the radio, what what's happening? Is and I'm talking, and I have no idea what I was doing. So they stuck a, a rope around the car and dragged it out of the way uh, so that um, everything could continue. And they're telling me on the radio, don't leave the car, don't leave the car. Is it, is it driving? Is it drivable? And I was kind of looking around. Like, the nose was gone and uh, the side pod was gone and actually broke a front steering arm as well. So I only had one steering arm. And I was kind of beginning to kind of understand where I was. And I thought, well, yeah, it probably is drivable. So then I tried to drive it from the Porsche Curse back to the pits. And I was driving around on the grass because um, it was easier to drive without a steering arm on, on the grass. Yeah. yeah. And then um, when I get to the pit entry, of course, I'm on the left coming up to the Ford Chicane. Yeah. And the entry is on the right. Yeah. So I've got across the track. And as I'm going down, and I'm still a little bit confused. And then there's a marshal uh, opposite in the pit lane and he's like no 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 because you can't I, I lost the side pod in the mirror so i, I had no right hand mirror oh, so God. cars are arriving there at i don't know what speed so i i was going to go and he's like no 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 and then he's like yes 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 so i start going across the track and then about a third of the way across he's like no no so i thought well, nothing i can do now i've got to keep going and hope nobody hits me and i kept on going and everything missed me it was fine and i got into the pits and then that, that, that was it. They set about repairing the, the car, but I was, um, I was not very well. <laughs> I mean, so, yeah. I mean, you, you know, you've had an amazing career. I mean, in terms of, you know, sports car stuff, I mean, you know, it's, it's an enviable career because, you know, I'm just looking here, obviously, um, you know, Le Mans win, you know, three wins of, of Daytona 24 hours, overall wins, um, you know, two wins of Sebring. I mean, it, it's in terms of sports car racing, if, you know, if, if any drivers kind of looks to be a professional sports car race and say, well, yeah, first of all, I'd love to win Daytona. Sorry, I'd love to win Le Mans. But then, to, you know, to win Sebring and Daytona, I mean, there's not, you know, there's not many drivers that have won all three and not and, and multiple times at that. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, just, it's a hell of a career, really, isn't it, when you, when you look back? Um, How do you go from that to, to DTM, though? You know, you've got this super touring era that's alongside the groups in my head as a kid. It was Group C cars, DTM cars, and Super Tourers. And, and somehow, you kind of hopped from one to the other and did them all. You did the holy grail of, of um, iconic um, heyday <laughs> motor racing. How did you go from sports cars to DTM? Well, that kind of happened by accident because if you, you remember, Group C, um, economy-wise, wasn't, wasn't looking good. So in 1990, at the end of 93, Group C pretty much died and the, the regulations changed and prototypes were banned. So for 94, there were no prototypes. And so I, I was out of a drive and just this drive popped up from, from almost nowhere. So that's how I ended up doing that, that one season. 
And then luckily uh, later on, of course, it's weird with this whole prototype thing. Uh, and that's why I'm not a big fan of this hypercar thing that's going to happen now, because what I've seen in the past, and, and, and it's easy to, to repeat the mistakes of, of what's gone before, but you, you take a, a prototype car. Yes, they're really, really fast. But because you don't have to make a road going version of that car, Yes, it's expensive. Teams are always going to spend a lot of money, but relatively for the speed, uh, it's pretty cost effective. It's a racing car. If you ban prototypes and you, you use road going cars, you've got all the expense of developing the road car and you've got the expense of uh, to developing the evolution of the road car that can go racing. And if you want to change something, you've got to change the road car. And it just ends up being yeah. almost where you were, but for probably two or three times the money. Yeah, which is which is absolutely the, the the way that they don't need to be going. They need to be making it cheaper, don't they? I think so. Yeah. I mean, uh, LMP2 at the moment is pretty competitive. There's lots of cars, and they're very spectacular. Yes, I guess you could in, you could involve more manufacturers, perhaps if you try to go the super the hypercar route. But I don't know. It's a bit of a risk, and it's been done before. And also, in the end, what happens is you follow this um, supercar GT hypercar, whatever you want to call it. And it, it, nothing stands still, so you're always getting more and more performance. At what point, how do you define a prototype? What's the definition of a prototype? Because if you push that hypercar thing, or GT, or whatever you want to call it, as far as you can, you end up with something that's so removed from what it was supposed to be as a road car, it becomes almost a prototype. Yeah, it doesn't really fit either category then, does it? It's not really no, somewhere in the middle. It's somewhere in the middle, and so in the end, it's like, okay, well, if you just put a set of rules out, and you don't have to worry about road regulation. These are the rules. Go and build a car. It ends up cheaper. So I don't know, but I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm not clever enough to run a championship or make up the rules. But it just seems to me to be a backward step for the hypercar. We're almost trying to take what's worked well in GT3, aren't they? Because in GT3, that has worked, hasn't it? Having the, the manufacturers have come one after the other, and GT3 suddenly got this huge pack of manufacturers. But it's as you say, it's that huge leap up to hypercar from from just supercar level, which. Yeah, the, the only thing I would say about GT3 is it's GT3 is all about privateer teams. And, and in the end, I know manufacturers come and go and, and uh, sports car racing's popularity ebbs and flows with the manufacturers. But, but what makes Le Mans is going to Le Mans and you've got Audi and Bentley and Toyota. Yeah. And this yeah. and the factories make the race and the factories also spend the money on the publicity of the race and it's a big deal. If you think about GT3, yes, the racing's good and there's a lot of competition. The cars are quite equal and, 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 but it still can't beat, for me anyway, just personally, it can't beat a big punch up. I mean, those days when we had Audi, um, who was there? Audi, Porsche, Toyota. Yeah. Was, they, that was absolutely spectacular. Even before that, you had all the British, like Bentley, MG, Morgan. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's really, really fantastic. And so, I, yeah. I, it's, look, if it was easy, everybody would make it a bit a success of all of this, but it's not easy. Of course, it's not. And the problem and is with the world now; it's changing so fast. It's become so expensive. I mean, you know, if you look at you know the racing in America right now, I mean, you know, the same season that, that we were racing in the American Le Mans series is, is is you know it's probably double what it was when we were doing it. And, and for what? Because the cars aren't any better or any faster. And and how can it be double the price or you know close to double the price? It doesn't make any sense how things have just become so expensive and that that's the problem is is that you know motorsport connects you know to a certain level people can afford to do it and people will come and go but 
it reaches a point where it becomes it just becomes crazy especially in the sort of the market and the environment that we're in currently it, it doesn't make any sense and that that's the big problem um i see in motorsport is it just it's just way too expensive for for what it's, the return is right currently yeah it, it's way too expensive if you look at the uh from the manufacturer's point of view uh good reasons for doing it are the publicity side hmm. the brand awareness side and then also the technology side Mm. So throughout history, things that have been developed on Le Mans cars end up on road cars quite soon afterwards. And it's much more connected to normal road cars than Formula One is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, an example of that, just when I drove uh, for Audi, I, I drove at Le Mans for Audi in 99. And the early 2000s, I drove an Audi in the American Le Mans series. Yeah. And I did it for a couple of years. And the first year, we had the old um, direct injection, port-injected engine. And then later on, they switched to the direct injection, which is one of the first, um, probably the first prototype car with a direct injection engine. Yeah. And the gains in torque and fuel economy and everything were amazing. And 18 months later, I bought an Audi A3 with a direct injected yeah. engine. And so you can see that it was a really fast-tracking way of proving the technology. Yeah. As soon, in fact, as soon as Le Mans was won by that engine, the direct injection engine, you could buy it. It was in the showroom. Yeah. So that, for manufacturers, that's an important part of it. Yeah. I think the reason that we've got trouble now is because we're right in the middle of switching to electrification. Mm. And so developing stuff that's not relevant to that is not interesting for manufacturing. That's why we've lost them. Yeah. Do you think that's where we're going ultimately, really? Yeah. Um, yes. Probably hydrogen. Hydrogen long-term. I, I think it'd be hydrogen power long-term. But I think short, medium-term, it's going to be kind of hybrid. That, that's, that's the way I see it. Um, well, it depends how long you want this podcast, because, <laughs> because I'm, I'm massively into electric cars. So, um, and one of the things that, uh, hydrogen is a great idea, um, and ultimately it will, there will be a place for it, but mm -hmm. as what I can see, perhaps trucks and perhaps boats, it might make sense. Right. But the biggest problem you've got with hydrogen, you take an, an amount of energy, and by the time you've got that hydrogen to do its work, you've already lost 70% of that energy. Right. So you do the same thing with electric and you've lost a very small amount, maybe 10%, maybe 15% at most. So, so it's inherently inefficient. Right. So, so even if you said, okay, we will manufacture the hydrogen using renewable energy, you're still going to need three times as much of renewable energy to run something on hydrogen as you are if you put it into a battery and run it in an electric car. Yeah. So, yeah. I told you, sorry about this. This is going to be a long podcast. <laughs> So if you look at that, um, yes, there's a place for it. And certainly, I mean, ships, you could, you can put a massive um, hydrogen fuel cell on a ship. Yeah. Uh, and, and it would be a good thing because uh, at the moment they're just burning dirty fuels crossing the Atlantic. There's no rules yeah. in all the oceans. And it's a, it's a disaster because everywhere in the world's trying to, to help the planet. And then you've got these massive container ships crossing um, without regulation pretty much. So, so that could be a good way of doing it. And, and the same with really, really heavy um, goods transport on roads, it might make sense. Mm. Or some battery electric and hydrogen fuel cell combined. But for, I think for small passenger cars, yeah. the way things are going um, and the, the economies of scale and the way the efficiency is increasing all the time, I can see. I mean, electric cars are amazing. So I mean, how do you get the theatre though, Andy? We've, we've lost the theatre. When you look at Formula E, I mean, some of the racing's fantastic, and some of the names that Formula E attracts again makes it. If you're a motorsport fan, if you if you're a nerd like I am, it's still pretty cool. But 
it has no theatre. It really doesn't, I don't think. But, but you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not uh, at the moment. I'm not a big fan of that. But you can see how many manufacturers are involved in it. Mm. Why? Because it fast tracks your development. And so, if you've got all those manufacturers and all those top class drivers in a series, in the end, it's going to succeed in some form. Yeah. What I don't like is at the moment the cars are too slow. The mm. tracks are appalling. Yeah. Um, and so, I, as a traditional race fan, you watch it, and there's a massive thing missing from it. I suppose you can argue it's dragging in a new audience, a captive audience in the middle of the city centres where they're running these races, but it's not, it's not feeding the traditional enthusiast. Yeah. But does that mean that it'll always be like that? I don't know, because the next generation of car will have a considerably more power. Um, presumably they'll have more energy. And, and, and these things start small and perhaps eventually with all the manufacturers putting their technology into it, it will go somewhere. Um, but at the moment, yeah, if you sit down and watch a, a, an F1 race or Le Mans or a Formula E, it's a no-brainer. We, we, we've all grown up with noisy engines, you know, smell of castrolar, you know, burning rubber. And that's what kind of excites us. And that's kind of what we've grown up with. But if you look at the, um, you know, the kind of the, the kids today, they're more excited by the tech. So because they haven't grown up with it, if, they don't, if they've not really smelled castrolar and they've not heard the engines, if you've not heard it, you don't miss it. And, right. and what they get excited about is the technology, you know, like, like with phones, with computers, and it's all about tech now. And, you know, if these manufacturers can come up with some exciting cars that are really techy and, you know, have got cool gadgets, and that, that seems to be what, what, you know, what, what, what the kids are, what the consumers are going to want going forward. And it's well, kind I'm... of bad in some respects, because you go to something like a Goodwood, and you, hit, you see all the old cars racing, and it's amazing. But unfortunately, you know, 10, 15 years' time, they're going to be... You know, pretty, you know, pretty far different to what to what the road cars are today. I am thoroughly depressed now, so I need to know what it was like to drive that Alfa Romeo 155 DTM car. <laughs> <laughs> you love that Alfa. You love that Alfa. I love that car. I had a Tamiya model of it when I was a kid. Um, I didn't realise I'd be speaking to the guy who actually drove it. <laughs> well, you you talk about the Jägermeister one. Yes. Okay, so the story you might not know then is that uh, when I when I signed for the team, it was Schubel motorsport yeah. team and so they were running a couple of factory cars or uh new cars i think it was uh chris nissen and christian dano were driving those two so these are this was like in the yeah the top category and then there was another category for year old cars called the privateer class mm -hmm. so they, they ran two cars the one i was driving was a white car which was supposed to be sponsored by fnac and the whole deal fell through so it ended up being a plain white car and the uh, Jägermeister car. So I always struggled in that white car all year. I couldn't get within a couple of seconds of the Jägermeister car being driven by Michael Bartels. And I, I just, just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't get close to it. I absolutely couldn't. And um, so the sponsorship wasn't there. And in the end, by about July, they said to me, listen, we've got no money to run the car anymore and we've got no money to pay you and whatever. So we're going to end up having to stop. But the last race of the year that I did was, um, was in Donington Park. It was probably the end of July or early August. And Michael Bartels couldn't do the race. So as a thank you for spending the whole year with the team, they said, look, you can drive the orange car at that race. And there were two events. I was first in one of them in the privateer class and second in the other one. 
having struggled all all year. And that'll explain why I couldn't find the, the damn car with the right side or with your name on it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Well, this is this is right. And so then talking to Chris Nissen, um, he he came to me and he said, "Oh yeah." Um, he said, we had those two cars as the factory cars all last year, and we could never figure out why the white one was two seconds slower than the orange one. It was the same all year, or whatever color they were, and we never ever figured it out. And I, well, thanks for telling me now. So I was spending the whole first part of the year thinking I'd just forgotten how to drive. And in the end, that's what it what it was. So I'm pretty thankful for to Schubel for allowing me to drive the orange one. They must have been incredible cars though. It must have been so they, wild. They were brilliant because um so uh, for people who weren't familiar with the rules, but also from, from a driving side, uh, they were two and a half litre atmospheric engines and pretty much not very many rules, I should say. I think there were, had to be V6s, yeah, two and a half litre V6 or whatever. So, so basically, they were close to 500 horsepower, so they were producing their um, power from RPM. So in the Alpha, you had a, a TACO, a digital TACO, that had two pages. So on the first page, you from zero to seven, and the second page was seven to 14,000. If ever it went down onto the first page of the taco, it wouldn't go anywhere, it wouldn't get out of his own way. He had to be on the second page. So it was all about RPM, and it was four-wheel drive, and they were amazing to drive. But the rules in DTM in those days, if you might already remember this, but basically two 100-kilometer races, um, the fuel tank was from memory, 105 litres. So you went out and qualified on a brand new set of tyres, an empty fuel tank, and then they sealed the fuel tank. You could fill it up for the race. They sealed the fuel tank and you did the first race on your qualifying tyres with a full tank of fuel. After the 100 kilometre race, there was a 15 minute break. And then the second race, you could put another new set of tyres on. The fuel tank was still sealed. So you had half tank of fuel. So the second race was a completely different race. The car felt totally different. In that 15 minutes, you could do anything you want to the car, anything. And they waited till all the cars got back to the pit lane, siren went off, and for 15 minutes, you do what you like. So, of course, Mercedes, who we were battling against, they had in the garage, on a subframe, another engine. Radiators connected to the subframe. I guess they had a jerry can with a fuel pipe in it. And this engine's being revved up on its subframe in the garage. And as soon as that 15 minutes started, they go out with the air wrenches and they change engine. Wow. Unbelievable. So, I mean, DTM, anyway, DTM's always been fantastic, hasn't it? I mean, just, yeah, the, yeah. The, it is a, it's a brilliant series. I know they're struggling a bit with manufacturers at the moment, but it's a brilliant series. But to see that, then we go back to our garage. There's the Alpha with a normal bonnet. Everything's all bolted and well. There's not much we're going to change, boys. So basically dip the oil, <laughs> stick it on the grid. <laughs> But that was, that was what it was about. And the whole occasion, the number of um, fans that came to watch, and just it was just unbelievable. Oh, amazing. So I really enjoyed it. So that's the real era of DC. As you say, they're impressive now. The steam up Brown's Hatch and the lap times that they get around the Indy Circuit Brown's Hatch is incredible. Yeah. But yeah, just an era of touring cars. One thing we've got to yeah. touch on, because obviously we've had Derek, we've had Derek on, on the podcast, um, which was fantastic. And um, I mean, he talks very, very fondly about that Le Mans in 95. Uh, yeah. where obviously he drove with, with Justin and yourself and, um, you know, so, so close to, to having, a, having, a, having a win, really, with that one. But tell, tell us a little bit about that one, about, about that race. This is the yeah, Harris McLaren one, isn't it? Yeah, it's what, sorry? Car. Yeah. Yeah, that was, was the what, sorry, sorry, what did you say? The, the Harris car, this, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yes, it was, it was a Harrods car. And, and also because uh, all of my experience was in prototype cars, it was, for me, it was quite, because it was uh, designated a GT1 car, wasn't it? So to go to a GT1, first of all, you've got, now you've not got the car scraping along the ground, yeah. weighing less, with lots of downforce. You're in a GT car, which is a, a different kettle of fish altogether. So a very good GT car, as it happens, but still you need to adapt. So I was adapting um, early on to the car, but I really got into driving the car. But with quite low downforce, and that race in 95, it was really, really raining a lot. And yeah. you were skating over puddles, and you were on the lock stops a couple of times going down the straight, and you really had to have your wits about you. Unfortunately, we because we led something like 10 hours of that race, but we had a clutch slow cylinder problem in the end. Uh, nothing we could do about it. And were it a normal racing dog box, you could easily have changed gear. It was an H pattern gearbox. You could easily have changed gear without the clutch. But unfortunately, it was a single single mesh gearbox, uh -huh. and it was um, also a bit of a stubborn one at that. So it was quite possible to go say sixth to fifth or fifth to fourth, miss the gear, get stuck in neutral, and then not being able to get any other gear, any gear. whatsoever. So it was too dangerous to, to, to try to do that. So once we had the problem, which was a couple of hours or three hours from the end, we then decided to do the rest of the race just in fifth and sixth. It was quite safe to go to fifth because it was just forward and you probably wouldn't get bulked into neutral. Yeah. Fifth and sixth. Yes, the V12 engine in the back was quite flexible, but you're going to lose a lot of time using fifth sure. and sixth. So sure. slowly we were passed by first one car and then before the end, another one, and we finished third overall. So it was... It was a race that uh, got away. Having said that, you'll notice that uh, in a 24-hour race, you'll have one team that wins, and you'll have quite a few teams that would have won if. <laughs> so <laughs> you don't count ones that got away. It got away, you didn't win, and bad luck. Um, but it was one that got away, unfortunately. They brought that car to Cadwell Park a few years ago, along with the P1 GTI, and they put them both in Harrods Fuller Schemes. Were you, were you brought down to drive that on that day? Because I know they had one of the drivers in. Yeah, I actually I did drive the P1 GTR at Silverstone in okay. Harrods colours. Yeah, it was interesting to drive. It's quite a cool shoot. I put a photo of it on our Instagram actually from the roof um, of the F1 the other day, and it looked good. Yeah, that's no, pretty cool. And then of course, Andy, you know, you spent a lot of time, obviously, like I did at, at Dyson Racing. You know, I think it's been a, a great home for 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 for, uh, for all of us. I mean, we all, we all have only only fond memories driving for for the governor. Um, I mean, uh, you know, what, what a team and of course racing in America is, is, you know, so much, so much fun, isn't it? You know, I think, um, I, I don't know about, about yourself, but I think, we, you know, we all look back and, you know, the America Le Mans series and what a great series it was and great circuits, um, you know, probably certainly, certainly for me, definitely a highlight of my career, that, that, that period of time racing in America. Um, but I mean, obviously, you know, you had a great relationship with, with, uh, with obviously with James Weaver and, and Butch Leitzinger, um, I mean, you know, how was it driving with those guys? I mean, a lot of fun. Yeah, well, no, and you're absolutely right, too. When you look back, they, I have only fond memories of driving for Dyson Racing, and Rob Dyson was a fantastic guy to drive for. And, and yeah. I guess when you look back on it, you realise just how lucky you were to drive for such a fantastic team, such a, a great atmosphere, and everybody wanted to win. He, um, if you drove for Rob, you always were given a car that was capable of winning. Yeah. The series was really competitive. They were some great years. Um, driving with James and Butch and yourself, of course. <laughs> we had a lot of fun. We had to sometimes pretend we weren't having fun because it's a serious <laughs> business. But obviously in the car, you did a fantastic professional job. But yeah. outside of the car, 
I mean, we had some wonderful times. Um, yeah, it was brilliant racing in America. And going backwards across the Atlantic, backwards and forwards every, yeah. every week as well. And uh, no, it was great. Yeah. I, I wanted to add, add a question. Someone, did you once in Le Mans, I've got this bit of paper somewhere. In, when you were in Le Mans, I think maybe with Perry McCarthy, did you once try and buy a car on a credit card? That's another story from another podcast, which gets okay. me into some other trouble. So okay. let's, not, let's not touch that. Okay, we'll work on that one then. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll stay yeah. away from that one then. Um, yeah. uh, but the short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, at this point we've heard so, so many great stories uh, from the, the starting with the Chiron uh, and the, the high speed, speed record um, to the racing and the DTM car, which I really want to hear about. Um, and we had a couple of uh, questions actually on, on Twitter. I don't know if you saw them, Guy. Um, Andy Marson, who he works for Bentley Motorsport, doesn't he? he does, yeah. Yeah, he um, did a lot of their test driving and. Both know Andy. Yeah. Um, so he said that you've done a couple of road car high speed runners, notably at that point, the McLaren F1 in 98 and now the Chiron Supersport. Um, how does that compare to racing? You've, you've kind of given it a kind of visceral feel for how it compares, but actually now in your career, how does it compare? You still have that competitive fight when you go out there to do a, a, a speed record have you still got is it how does it compare well um of course it doesn't compare because when you're when you're racing as a professional driver you're you're there you're you're working for the team you're working for yourself too but primarily you're working for the team um everybody in the race is is working for the same thing it's very intense before the race you've no idea what's going to happen at the first corner um, anything can happen at any stage and it's incredibly yeah, intense. It's uh, it's your whole life. So when you do a record attempt, you're not racing against anybody else. You're racing against the clock, um, the speed gun, if you like. But having said that, all of the experience of racing for more than 30 years as a professional driver uh, didn't go to waste. You learn an awful lot of things and you apply yourself, or I certainly did, you apply yourself to the job. So if the job is, can you drive for us and try and win Daytona or try and win Le Mans, that's one thing. But if somebody says, right, can you come and do this speed run for us? You just use all the tools in your toolbox that you, you used. And yeah, you're not racing down in the first corner and, <laughs> and trying to get ahead, but you're, at the same time, you're, you're doing a very serious job. And when, when the, the world speed record was 200 miles an hour, um, was one thing, but now we're talking about incredibly high speed. So we're talking about quite a serious job. Um, so your focus, I just put myself in the same position I would have done in any other professional um, driving job. That's what you need to do. And you're gathering data for the engineers too, and you, you're, um, you're trying to give some feedback. And um, yeah, I mean, I retired from professional racing a while ago, but you never forget how to ride a bike, do you? So it all comes flooding back and you, you try to do the best job you can. You've, you've driven in some of the areas when um, there were big tyre wars and you used to do tyre tests and they were actually big news. The tyre tests were almost as big news as they launched the new cars and stuff. Is it similar to that where you're, you're testing a... Does it, is some comparisons we made there? What I used to like was the fact that we used to go testing, never mind tyre testing. Yeah, yeah. We used to do a lot of testing and it was great. And, and, um, and perhaps we, we sort of grew up with that and we, in the end, we relied on that. Whereas, whereas nowadays, a lot of people do stuff on sim, and then when they jump in the car, they already know what they're doing. We never used to do any of that. It didn't exist. So everything we did was, was uh, information in the bank, if you like. So if you went and did a, 
I like I used to love the tire tests, but I also like the chassis tests, mm. where the guys have found a couple of things we want to try. They found something in the wind tunnel. They did something on the geometry, and you go and you do a back to back to back to back to back test to check that these things were actually better. And um, I used to really enjoy that side of it. And you had to be a very analytical driver. You had to be very consistent to deliver the real result because nobody wants to put a part on the car which you think is quicker and actually it's not. And you basically shoot yourself in the foot. So you have to be absolutely sure. So I used to love that. The tire testing stuff was interesting. So if you had a, a contract with a, a top tire manufacturer, um, you'd go to the track and then the next year or the beginning of the year, perhaps we'd go to Sebring in, in sort of January or February time and they come with the latest tires. And you put them on the car and the car go a second and a half faster on this tire at least and it was amazing what they'd done over the winter but then every year they came with the second and a half quicker so does that mean that in 20 years we're now 30 seconds a lap quicker do you know it's it's weird there's so much progress on tires andy we talk we're talking about testing we can't we can't not talk about mossport because and and, and I, it's just we just can't so um Obviously, I'll let, I'll let you tell us about it. I mean, it's quite an infamous story in the Dyson camp. You know, yes. I remember when I joined Dyson and I went to Mossport and they were like, well, we came here testing once and Andy had this massive crash and um, he went upside down on his roll hoop for so many meters. Da, 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 and I, saw, I actually saw the pictures of the car, which looked yeah. horrendous. Um, but perhaps you could tell us a little bit about, about what actually what happened. Right, so um, Dyson Racing rock up to Mossport. It was probably March time, perhaps even maybe early April, maybe at the latest. So we've got two cars, private test, exclusive use of the track. And um, I was driving the number 20 car with Chris Dyson and the 16 was there as well. Who was driving the 16? Were you there, Guy? No, right. it must have, been, must have been Butch and James. Butch and James would have been okay. driving it, yes. So, um, Chris was going to go out in the car first in the morning and then um, he had to change his flight or something and he said listen mate I'm going to go and book some flights you can go first in the car so I was like okay so I go out in the in the morning and I do a couple of laps you, you obviously you do a, a rollout lap you come back check for leaks then you go out again you, you readjust the ride heights and things like this so but during the winter um, there's a there's a famous um, hump that you go over before at the end of the back straight before turn eight so you go flying over flying is the wrong word to use so you go very fast over the hump and then you've got this fast right hand corner at the end and we all know the track really well the straight is actually not straight so it kind of meanders and you've got grass either side uh, and, a, and a wall either side so on my preliminary lap um i felt going over the the jump or over the hump, I felt a bit of a tap under the car, which I thought, well, that's not brilliant. So anyway, I came to the pits, checked the ride heights, everything was fine. So I went out and did another lap. And sure enough, I always went over the brow of the hill in the same place, as we all do. I went over again, over the brow of the hill, and I felt this bump under the car again. So then in my tiny little mind, I figured out, well, that's quite dangerous, that bump. Next lap, I'll move half a meter to the right and I'll miss the bump. So on the next lap, I'm flying down the straight, blah, 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 get to the same point, and I missed the bump. But I caught the bump's big brother, which was half a meter to the right. And that was it then. It was story over. I mean, it, I just felt that it hit the bottom, the car lifted up five or ten millimeters, boom, and then it was in the air flying. 
and you're you're flat out in top gear in an open top lmp2 car flying upside down and i'd seen quite a lot of um alan mcnish did it in um road atlanta oh, I did it, yeah. in, in portland yeah Le Mans with uh, mark weber and peter dunbrack yes. and usually when the cars fly they tend to fly all the way over yeah and perhaps land on the wheels or the gearbox yeah but in this case, whether because we had more downforce on or what, because uh, Mossport is a very fast track with a lot of high-speed corners, so you run a lot of downforce. The car didn't do that. It went completely fully upside down with the gearbox going in the direction of travel before takeoff. And we paced it out, and it was 202 metres we paced out before it first landed. And the thing is with, um, with an open-top car, if you come back down on a hard surface, you've got a pretty good chance of being okay. Yeah. Each side of the straight, and the straight's meandering, each side of the straight is these grass areas. And if you come down on the grass upside down, you're done. Yeah. So you're up in the air. I was always um, told that you never ever give up in an accident. You can always do something. So you're in the air and you find yourself still steering, still pressing the pedals and nothing's making any difference. Did you lift? Did you lift? <laughs> I think I did after a while because it was <laughs> deafening the way the engine was still wide open. <laughs> And then you just sit there and you think, oh, shit. And you're looking through the thing and you, you can see the track's quite narrow from that height. And you basically just have to wait. I mean, you need to grab a hold of the belts to try and keep your arms in. And you just wait and just hope you come down on the, the flat bit. And so, and it did a couple of times, bang, bang, bang. And it's scraping along the ground, upside down, bits are flying off. And then once it got to turn eight, it hit the grass with the roll hoop, flicked itself back over onto the wheels. And so then at that point, I thought, well, it's all finished. So I was, that was lucky. I ended the seatbelt. Then I realized I'm still going quite fast towards the guardrail. And I'm trying to put the seatbelt back on, but I can't. And then it stopped in the gravel trap. And then it was, it was okay. So my immediate reaction was, James was in the other car. And you can hear it coming. And I'm thinking, shit, he's going to do the same thing. So I jumped out of the wreckage and I'm running towards stupidly trying to run 200 meters and you know i'm running towards and then I realize i'm not going to make it so i went back to the car and hid in the wreckage hoping that he would miss me but he saw all the bits of bodywork off everywhere and he slowed down before the the jump and it was all okay oh, horrendous so, yeah it was quite a horrendous um, time and then of course you need to get in the other car straight away just for your head uh, yeah. So, yeah. so later in the afternoon i drove the other car but uh, oh wow yeah, and I didn't do. I mean, I, I, we've all we've all done some damage for the to the government's cars, but we 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 tend not to do that much damage. But th that day, I think I did quite a bit of damage, unfortunately. So I really apologise <laughs> for like listening to this. Um, Jonathan Tookwell has asked us on Twitter. You raced in all the big races, Andy, driving incredible cars from the Jaguar Group C to, of course, the Speed Eight. Um, what has been your most memorable race, and why? That's a horrible question for a racing driver like you. You've got so many. Yeah, yeah. and if I was like uh, 20 years younger, I could probably answer the question quite easily. But um, there are so many races that pop up in your mind that, that, that were amazing races. And some of the most amazing races you ever did um, as a driver are not necessarily the ones that you won, but you, you knew that you did a fantastic job and you were really an integral part of the result, whatever result it was. But having said all that, Winning Le Mans doesn't ever do your career any harm whatsoever. And in fact, winning any 24-hour race doesn't hurt either. So those races kind of stick in my mind. But 
I don't know, if you said pick your top 50 races, I might be able to do that, but to pick one <laughs> is almost impossible, unfortunately. So it's a nice problem to have. About yeah, well, it is. It is a nice problem to have, but um, no, there have been there have been so many. Favourite car? You're a car buff. We can tell yeah. that. You're a petrol head. Favourite car? Yeah, I mean... Which one would you like in your garage? If you could have one of the potlights. It's Toyota Prius, isn't he? <laughs> no. Just <laughs> unleashed. Um, well, in terms of race car, generally what happens is the regulations keep changing. And so they change because the cars get too fast. So the one car that will stick in my mind for a very long time, the Toyota TS010. Mm. So this was in the early 90s. Yeah. What had happened at the end of 1990, uh, at the end of that, that was the last Group C race with the uh, 900 kilo turbocharged cars on a fuel consumption formula. And then the new category started, still called uh, Group C1. And those cars were 750 kilos, still full ground effects, and then three and a half liter V10 F1 engines. So what happened is during the, during the winter time, so you'd lost 150 kilos, and then the um, aerodynamicists had been working on the car, so you had even more downforce. So you then ended up with cars with, I mean, they, were, they could pull 5G in the corners. They were just unbelievable cars to drive. And the Toyota was a great car. Unfortunately, um, Peugeot built a slightly better one and duffed us up pretty much every race. But driving that car sticks in my mind. Um, what an amazing car. Particularly, of course, in the high-speed corners, it had loads of grip, it had loads of downforce. But even the medium-speed corners, you could go so much faster than anything you'd ever driven in the medium-speed corners. It just had so much grip. Incredible car. Do you own any of your old race cars? No, I don't. I mean, it'd be something that would be nice to do, but... Um, Which one would you pick to own, to have under lights? Oh, that's another one of those difficult questions. It's got to be the Le Mans car because it's got to be the most valuable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It depends what you're keeping it for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, that's so, got a silk-cut Jag sat there under some spotlights in the garage, wouldn't it? Yeah, yes, it would. Yeah, it would. It, um, yeah, it's another one of those questions. I'm not doing very well on these questions, <laughs> am I? It's, it's well, we've got some quick-fire questions. You'll yeah, do let's do this. It. Let's do this. So, Andy, I've just got some quick fire questions for you. So, you've basically got to say the first thing that comes into your mind. Um, so, uh, Top Gear or Grand Tour? I haven't got Amazon. <laughs> Top Gear then? <laughs> I, I... Okay. Daytona or Sebring? <laughs> Daytona or Sebring? Yeah. Oh, blimey. What I used to like about Sebring was that you didn't lose a night's sleep. However, 12 hours pounding around there is like 24 hours anywhere else. True. So I still haven't answered the question, but I might be giving you some flavor. <laughs> so you like them both for different reasons, basically. Yes. Yes, yeah. okay. Um, beach holiday or adventure holiday? I think beach, because you can just relax after all that running about. That's true, that's true. Dogs or cats? Uh, probably cats, actually, but I haven't got either. Really? That's, that's, the first, that's, that's, a, that's, an, that's an upset. That's quite seismic, that. Huh? <laughs> that's quite seismic in the spinning wheels world. Exactly. So we've had 20... We've had 20 gonna, you're going to break Twitter with that one, Andy. We've had 20 guests, and the answer has been nine... Was it... No, sorry. Eight, 18 times has been dogs, and twice has been cats. Is that right? Yes. Um, oh, was it 19 times? Uh, no, 19 times dogs, because we actually put some pressure on the last... Cats. Yeah, Brian Gush, Brian Gush said cats. So we, we thought if you're, if you're going to be a successful racing driver, 
you had to like dogs, but you've, you've just blown that one out of the water. So well, controversial. Well, I don't dislike dogs, and I've got <laughs> neither. But that's okay. <laughs> um, oversteer or understeer? Ah, I mean, if somebody's filming it, it'd have to be oversteer, wouldn't it? <laughs> I, I'd have you down as an understeer man, though. Your style. Yeah. You're very well, smooth. I am. Yeah, yeah, I much prefer that because I know what I'm doing. But I think, unfortunately, the way cars have evolved, an understeering car isn't as fast as an oversteering That's one. That's true. That's true. So, um, Jaguar or Bugatti? I'll tell you what, I'm blown away by the Bugatti, so I would have to say that. It's they're they're in player right now, so say Bugatti, definitely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also, I mean, nothing, nothing can accelerate like one of those. And it's to be fair, he opened up with that same line, guy, so we'll give him that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, last one, so V6 or V8? If the V6 was attached to an electric motor, I'd go with that. Oh dear, I thought you were going to say a DTM car. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe you've turned all tree hugger on us, Andy. I can't believe it. I'll tell you what, it, it, it doesn't have to be about that. It's just about how really cool it is to drive some of these. Um, but having said that, nothing, nothing compares with having 1500 horsepower behind you and That's driving true. something like that. All, all I'm meaning by when I say this is that it's scary when you think about all of the stuff we've driven is, is perhaps disappearing slowly and we're going to go electric. But yeah. in the end, there's nothing to worry about because all the cars that the top manufacturers make are going to be really exciting to drive, yeah, exactly. whatever powers them. So a different experience, a different experience, but but still with the same you know, exhilaration. Um, what's been really nice about this because it's going to rip your head off on the acceleration. Yeah. <laughs> what's, what's been really nice about this one for me, guys? A lot of the time, I'm having to stop the the story to say, actually, tell us what that felt like. But Andy, you really have a way of telling them that. Um, it gives that visceral experience, especially with the, you know, talking about the, the DTM car that I was really excited to hear about. I do feel like I know what it was like to be inside one. Um, so thank you for that. That was, I've never been in these cars. I haven't gone headed towards these barriers and, and looked at the sky, looked at the track, looked at the sky, looked at the track. But, you know, um, sometimes it's nice to uh, hear about it yeah. and feel like you could be there just for that moment. Exactly. Oh, it's great. Well, no, it's really nice to talk to you guys anyway. It's well, been I've, fun. Got, I've got one last thing. I've got one last question for you. So I've got, um, I've got a pass along question from Mike Nicholson. And he said, um, rally drivers or racing drivers, who are the most talented and why? Um, of course, I would be biased because all my stuff was done on a, on a track. But I have to tell you that I've been uh, standing in the Welsh forests watching the top guys in WRC come through the forest and you have to take your hat off to them. And you could also say the same thing about the MotoGP guys. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree with you, actually. Unbelievable. Yeah. What they're supposed to do. Yeah. So, Andy, have you got, have you got a pass-on question for our next guest? It can be anything. It can be anything. Literally anything. So, who is the next guest? Do you know yet? Um, don't know yet. That's um, half the fun. Right. That's half the fun. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, what is the most stupid thing you ever did in a racing car? Right. I know. What's, what's the most stupid thing you've ever done in a racing car? <laughs> oh, blimey. Now, that's another new podcast complete. <laughs> okay. so. All right. We'll leave that one. We'll leave that one. That's great. Well, that's great, Andy. Thank you for, for coming on. We've really enjoyed it. It's been, been great to catch up. I mean, like you said, we could, we could probably talk for another two hours. Um, you know, but um, it, it's, um, you know, it's been great to catch up with you and said a lot of respect for 
everything you've done in your career so far, I mean, it's just been, you've had such an amazing career and, you know, continuing to sort of set records now with Bugatti and, and which is fantastic to see and, um, you know, hats off to you for that. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, 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 for being on the podcast. I really appreciate no, it's it. It's been a pleasure. No, we need to get a beer sometime as well. <laughs>